Well, hello there, friends. I'm your host, Kendra Winchester, and this is Read Appalachia, a podcast celebrating Appalachian literature and writing. And this is episode one. <laughs> I can't believe that it's that it is finally here, that today is the day. It's been so long in coming. It currently is in that cold, rainy phase of the year that South Carolina likes to call winter. So we are in my library today, which is covered in black bookshelves. And any wall space that isn't covered in books is draped in bookish art. During this time of the year, my library is my safe haven, a warm little box of a room that's perfect for staring out your window and thinking moody thoughts as you stare out at the rain and the gray skies. It is just a little bit of introvert moody perfection. So I welcome you here today (laughs) into my library. Grab a seat, grab a cup of your beverage of choice, and let's, let's have a chat. There's so much to talk about today. So as a kid in Appalachian, Ohio, I read a lot of books, both for fun and for school, but I rarely ever saw myself or the people from my community in the books that I read. It wasn't until I was in my last year of my English program in grad school that I finally began seeing stories that featured Appalachian people, but that was only because I began looking for them outside of the classroom. In my search, I found stories featuring characters from places like Western North Carolina, Eastern Kentucky, and even Appalachian, Ohio. The dialects that I saw on the page reflected the ones that I knew so well. Before reading these stories, I never truly understood that there were stories that were mirrors that could reflect back to me the world that I came from, giving me a chance to see myself in their pages in a completely new way. There were also plenty of books that acted like windows, giving me a chance to see Appalachian communities and cultures that I wouldn't have been introduced to otherwise. When reading these stories, I began to better understand that there were so many different ways to be an Appalachian person. Whether mirrors or windows, I think Appalachian literature plays a powerful role in our culture. I I firmly believe that our literature is just as rich, just as complex as any other kind of literature. Our literature should be treasured for the beautiful art that it is, and even celebrated. So Read Appalachia, this podcast, exists to do just that, to celebrate Appalachian literature and writing in all of its complexity, contradictions, messiness, joys, sorrows, and emotional depth. So we're here on this show and in all of our future episodes to talk about it all, to talk about Appalachian stories. So this is episode one. Last week, we had episode zero, which was actually a special preview episode where I talked to Amanda Page, another creative from Appalachian, Ohio, and we had a great chat about our hometown of Portsmouth. It's a small town in Scioto County, and like a lot of places, Portsmouth has seen better days, but Amanda and I share in the hope that there are good things in store for the place our hearts call home. 
And that town inspires a lot of the work that we do in our various creative fields. So this is the launch plan. Uh, Yes, there is a launch plan. (laughs) So this is a monthly podcast, but for the first month, we are going to actually have three episodes. And those are kind of three parts of a same larger idea or episode. So they all are connected to each other. So today, February 2nd, we are looking at the question, what is Appalachian literature anyway? If Read Appalachia is supposed to celebrate Appalachian literature, I thought defining it would be a good place to start. February 9th, so next Thursday, as of the time that this podcast is released, we'll be looking at where does Appalachian literature come from? Who produces these books? How do books get made? That is the big question that I always had growing up, and I fell in love with publishing. So that is the story, the love story that will be told on February 9th. On February 16th, the third Thursday in the month, we will be looking at the last part of this launch series. And that question is, what is in store for the future of Appalachian literature? Now, there are a gazillion answers to that question, but I had a very particular project in mind and people I wanted to interview about those projects. So I will refrain from giving spoilers, but safe to say, I'm very excited for you to listen to those interviews. There are so many great things in store. The last Thursday of February, there will be a week break, but I am planning a live show on our Instagram for that week because why not? So stay tuned for news about that and be sure to keep an eye on Read Appalachia's social media where I will be announcing what that event is uh, there first. So very excited. As you can tell, I'm making wild hand gestures and trying to keep my joy at least contained in my body for this present moment. On March 2nd, we will start our regular schedule of episodes going up on the first Thursday of every month. I am excited to chat with you about so many great topics around literature. This is a topical podcast, so we will talk about books There will be no spoilers, but you also never have to read the book to be able to participate in the conversation and understand what's going on. Now, before we jump in today's question or today's topic, let's talk a little bit about how you can support Read Appalachia. Read Appalachia is a labor of love. It's dozens of late nights filling more notebook pages than I can count. It's planning out the arc of the season and narrowing down a single topic for each episode. It's writing out the introductions. It's hosting interviews, recording, editing, and producing every podcast episode. Throughout the show, I'll be sharing different ways that you can support Read Appalachia. You can find all of these different ways to support the show on our website, readappalachia.com. And of course, all of them will be linked in the show notes. The first way I'm going to mention that you can help support the show is by sharing the show with your friends. Tell other people. It's really important, especially for a new show, to gain some traction. Uh, So sharing Reappalachia with everyone you know is amazing. And so 
thanks to all of you who have already done that. The early support for the show has really been so encouraging as I have been working, eating, and sleeping this show for the last couple months. So it really warms my heart to see all the love on the internet for Read Appalachia. Another way you can support the show is by leaving a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, especially Apple Podcasts, because it does have such a large part of the podcast market. It really helps for other people to find Read Appalachia, which again is so important for new shows. So you can find all of that info in our show notes, and I will be back a little later in the show to share a few different ways that you can support Read Appalachia as well. Uh, But let's just get back to it. Let's get back to talking about Appalachian literature. So today on the show, we are looking at the question, what is Appalachian literature? When we talk about the idea of capital L literature, a lot of people shy away from it. I think many people probably had my experience where I was taught that there are literary air quotes books and other books that you would read for fun, (laughs) but only the literary books counted as literature. This idea really hit home for me when I was talking about Read Appalachia with a friend and they asked with genuine curiosity, what counts as literature? I remember giving them a less formal answer at the time, but then I began to wonder myself, what is literature? How is it defined? I checked some college textbooks and looked around the internet, and no one really agreed 100%. There wasn't really a for sure definition. And I even noted in one of my glossaries that the definition of literature has been debated for centuries, probably at this point. So if it's so hotly debated, if the academics who air quotes get to decide what literature is, if they can't agree, is there any hope for the rest of us? Of course there is. (laughs) What a silly question. Uh, But I had to ask, right? Uh, Sometimes trying to figure things out on your own can be quite overwhelming. So we'll do this together. And better yet, I've asked a couple people to come on the show and help us figure out this very important question when it comes to the world of books. When I was thinking of who I would ask on the show, my mind immediately went to the profession where they have to answer this question all day, every day, or I'm sure it feels like they do. And that is, of course, English lit teachers, particularly high school English lit teachers and teachers who teach uh, maybe Literature 101 or 102, those classes where they have all sorts of students from all different majors that are required to take. These teachers are the ones who really have to break it down. They are far less academic. They're way more practical. And that is something that I really appreciate about their work. English lit teachers have helped students fall in love with literature for hundreds of years. So I thought, right, that's perfect. Let's have some teachers on the show. So in the second half of the show, I'll be talking to Melissa Helton, a teacher at the Heinemann Settlement School located in Eastern Kentucky. Melissa shares her thoughts on the idea of literature and how that influences her work in educational programming and her own writing. 
But first, I thought I would have one of my favorite authors on the show, who also happens to be a former English lit teacher, and she is uh, so delightful to talk to. But wait, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The person that I'm talking to first is, of course, the wonderful Annette Sinek-Clapsaddle. And instead of me gushing over how much I love her work and giving you bits and pieces of her biography, how about we just start with Annette introducing herself. I am Annette Sinek-Clapsaddle, and... I am the author of Even As We Breathe, which was published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2020. So now I am a um, full-time writer, which is new since um, last spring. I live in Cherokee, North Carolina, where I was born and raised, and I'm an enrolled citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. So I um, really write about the community uh, that I'm from in Western North Carolina. And I am married and have two young boys who keep me busy. So that that's a little bit of who I am. You mentioned that you very recently are a full-time writer. Um, before that, you were a teacher, as a high school teacher? Yes. Yeah, so um, prior to the summer, I taught uh, at a public high school, Swain County High School, for about 12 years, I taught English and co-taught Cherokee studies with a language instructor and really love teaching. Um, and so I continue to teach workshops now and talk to high school classes, um, but had the opportunity to, to step away and focus more on writing recently. So today we are here for the episode, um, What what is literature? And I feel like when I was talking to people about this episode, the like literature, like capital L literature kind of gets a reaction. Um, so I guess let's start unpacking that for you. Like you're, you're teaching, you, you've taught students and done all of these different things with the idea of literature for you. What is literature? Oh, wow. That's a great question for me, literature. And I tell students this a lot. Literature is anything that can be read. That goes back to kind of the first marks that human beings made on a surface, right? To try to communicate um, to each other a message. I like to think of literature really broadly. That way um, you have no one community that gets to define uh, what what is literature um, because it, it's so broad. Um, but I think at its heart, it's a way that it's it's something that connects people. Even the simplest mark is a communication that com connects one human being to another. And I, you know, I think that is the essence of what literature is, is that that connection through communication. So when you talk to students about literature, do you do you get some reactions like a, an aversion to like capital L literature? Oh yeah, I mean, I get I get aversions to reading in general or <laughs> writing in general. So even to get to literature is a, a pretty huge step. Um, and I think you know a lot of times, and I'm talking mostly about high school students, you know, that I've worked with. A lot of times they just haven't uh, discovered the literature that speaks to them. Um, it's it's speaking a different language that doesn't communicate with them, and so. You know, 
there is an aversion to all literature until they find that right that right piece. You know, a great example of this, I has <laughs> I had this student, and I won't say his name because I don't have his permission to tell the story, but he just a fun kid, really bright, had no need for school, like in his mind, you know. But he was always fun to have in class. Would never do his homework or anything, but was, you know, uh, fun or work in general, <laughs> but was fun to have in class. And he would be one of those students that would say he, he hated reading. He had no use for it. He graduated. And then I started getting text messages from him about all of these books that he has started reading. Like Moby Dick, for example, or Frankenstein. We're not, you know, we're not talking you know, comic books. And it has been the craziest thing um, that it just took him, and these are, you know, capital L books, right? It took him deciding for himself that this is what he wanted to explore. I think the last one he texted me was, he's reading The Art of War right now. So, you know, I don't know where this literature is taking him. Uh, it's a little scary sometimes, some of the things he's reading, but <laughs> I think that, you know, our job as teachers is just to to expose kids to as many different types of literature that we can and hope that, you know, that little seed is planted, uh, but they have to grow it and they have to grow it in the direction um, that they, they want to. Uh, you can't force somebody to love literature, I don't think. See, so you mentioned that like it was, uh, they just needed to find literature that like that connected with them. I, I think of that a lot when I think about Appalachian literature and how growing up I didn't I didn't see or read many Appalachian books. You you write Appalachian literature. You read Appalachian literature. What is what is unique about literature from the region? I, you know, I think that we have such a strong sense of place that informs the people here. So when you read characters in Appalachian literature, it is as if they are imbued with place. You can't separate the two. And, I, you know, I know there's other literature from around the world that's similar to that. But it's, you know, when I say that that the characters... Uh, are built from this place that that means then that there's this sense of reverence for our environment this kind of survival mentality right of you know living through not only harsh conditions of early Appalachia but just kind of different threats to our region economic threats extraction of resources and all that all of that just seems to play into the characters in Appalachian literature and the stories of Appalachian literature. It's a place, you know, I think the word resilience gets you, you know, overused sometimes because I don't think, you know, we've ever reached a, a point where we're having to come back from, from failure, really. You know, we it's just this constant, I don't want to say fight for this area, but you know, I'm, having a, I'm having a hard time finding the right word that's not an overused word these days because grit is overused. It's a strength. I guess it's just a strength, at, you know, in the people and the stories um, of this place for generations. And the, the literature conveys that. I've never read a piece of Appalachian literature that that didn't 
provide that sense of, of strength. And it doesn't matter who the characters are, what the storyline is. Uh, it always kind of comes through um, in the literature from this region. And you have spent uh, the last you know two years traveling around the region, promoting your book and talking to different people. Um, was there anything in particular that listed out to you promoting your writing, which is Appalachian literature, that, that people really engaged with on that level? Um, well, I would say uh, this is a little bit different than talking about Appalachian literature, but I think one of the things that, that strikes people when I talk about my writing and the book itself is that it was the first novel published by a member of our tribe, uh, which is shocking to people. It's interesting because sometimes if I give a talk, I will say that even as we breathe, this is the you know, first novel published by an enrolled citizen of the Eastern Band, and people will clap. And I will say, no, <laughs> that's not a good thing, right? It's, you know, it's published in 2020, um, and we've had a written form of our language since the early 1800s. We've been storytellers for thousands of years. Um, it's absurd that it's the first novel published. So I think that resonates with people, especially when I also tell them the story of of my students who, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, you know, who said this is the first time that they see themselves in a novel. And I don't think that's true for a lot of America, right? That they, they've been able to see themselves in stories before to some extent. I think that that is something that strikes a chord with people that I've talked to. Listening to some of your interviews and talks and having talked with you before, one of the reasons I love listening to you talk about your book, besides the fact that I, I love even as we breathe, is that you are pulling from so many different literary and storytelling traditions through your writing. And I find that something beautiful and, and unique about your book. Is that something that you really wanted to consciously tie all together? Or is that something that just your your writing comes from you as a person and that's who you are? I, I would say it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, in the in the beginning of the book, in the prologue, there's a line that County, the protagonist, says that we are bits and pieces of the people uh, we meet. And that that's a line I actually did get from a teacher, my, one of my favorite high school English teachers, from a poem I believe she shared with us that, you know, we are bits and pieces of the the people we meet. And I think as a writer, I you know, I'm bits and pieces of the literature that's influenced me, um, of the oral tradition of this region, of the classics. I love the classic, the whatever you, <laughs> I shouldn't say the classics, right? The American literary canon that they that are taught in traditional settings, right? The dead white guys. I love a lot of the dead white guys. Um, you know, I I don't think there's any reason to only write in one tradition because if you do, then that tradition's dead. Just like a culture, if a culture doesn't change and grow in some way, still staying true to its values, but but growing. Uh, if it doesn't do that, then it's dead. So, you know, I think as a writer, um, it's my responsibility to keep adding on, you know, to my influences 
staying true to my values as a writer, but I love pulling from from different traditions. So you've been around talking about Even As We Breathe, and it's just about to go into paperback and has a gorgeous new cover, which I will put in the show notes somewhere. I'm very excited for it. Um, and what's interesting watching you tour is that you've taken this book all over and that is wonderful. Uh, when you take the book outside the region and you have conversations with pe- readers outside the region versus inside, what is what is that like for you? Is there, I mean, it had to be a, a bit of a different experience. Yeah, I, I do turn on a different switch depending on where I am. When I'm outside of the region, I have to be cognizant that I am more in a, a teacher role than I normally am. Um, I have to explain a little bit more about our tribe and our tribe's history and our place within the region. Um, and also the similarities of a Cher- our Cherokee community, our Eastern Band Cherokee community and Appalachia in general, that our tribal community is not like the tribal communities they may have seen on television or that depict more Western tribes. Because I think that's the idea that a lot of uh, readers not from this region have. Um, and so, you know, I'll get questions about, for for instance, um, the the uh, church scene where Lishi, you know Lishi's church in the book, right? And and people are confused by that 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 Cherokee, you know, that Cherokees would be Christian. Um, and I just have to explain kind of this this melding of cultures that has happened um, in Western North Carolina specifically that you know, we're not in opposition necessarily to Appalachian culture, that there's a lot that goes hand in hand, um, just may have a different take. And again, that we have shared values. So I think that is something that I have to talk about a little bit differently and give more insight into when I talk to to folks from uh, outside the region. So, you know, I find myself sometimes uh, you know, speaking, and then someone will ask a question, and I'll I'll realize I need to reel it back and and prov- uh, provide a little foundation. And then the the opposite is that I love speaking with local crowds, and sometimes I kind of forget I'm in front of a local crowd, and I'll start giving background, and then I'll go, "Oh no, wait, y'all are from Asheville. Let me t- you know, let me be more give you some more details that you'll you'll understand that other people won't understand." So. So I like doing both because I like, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. So I like telling other people about this place. But I also love uh, talking to local groups um, because they can appreciate on a different level. I think when we talk about literature and we start throwing around the L word, I don't think a lot of people think about contemporary books as much as literature. But as we've discussed, they very much are. I feel like sometimes people think that literature isn't for them, that they're not academic enough, that they're not enough of so many different things to engage with literature. And and that can be, you know, a bit overwhelming sometimes, I think. Uh, For anyone who feels intimidated, perhaps, by uh, the discussion of literature, uh, where where would you recommend that that they start? Sure. So I think um, I would recommend anyone that's intimidated to 
to look for their local authors, right? To to find an author from their region because they'll be able to connect with place first and maybe even characters um, first. And then ask yourself who influenced that writer. Um, and sometimes that'll be obvious from their writing. Sometimes you'll do a little bit of digging to interviews and whatnot. And ultimately, I think that will lead uh, a reader to some of these big L writers that that we think about, right? That we all have these these influences that may seem intimidating to people. Uh, for example, like if if you ask me one of my favorite authors, I'm gonna say William Faulkner. And William Faulkner is intimidating to, you know, some people. But I think, you know, if you read my work, my work's a little more accessible than, than some of William Faulkner's work. But um, I think it's a good starting place then, then to maybe discover Faulkner's work, right? So, yes, yeah, so I think start with your local writers because, and this is just what I know for my students, when they hear a place name and they have been there, you know, when they read... David Joy's writing or Ron Rash's writing, um, and they know those places and those last names, they are so excited. Um, and then, you know, I can talk to them about what authors have influenced David Joy and Ron Rash. And I think that that just they build their confidence in that way. Well, you've you've just mentioned some writers uh, that I assume are are also uh, inspiring to you as excellent North Carolina authors. Are there any other authors that you would say have influenced your work? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no way I can name them all, but I'll I'll throw out some names. So speaking of other North Carolina writers, um, of course, Charles, Charles Frazier, um, I consider him a mentor from very early on. Silas House, who is my editor on the book, continues to be a mentor in literature and in life, <laughs> um, in terms of native literature, um, Louise Erdrich is is my hero. Like if she walked through the door right now, I'd probably faint. And I, you know, I may have said this to you in the past as well. And I always struggle with this one, uh, but I, I I think I need to say it. My first influence by a native writer was Sherman Alexie. I mean, he was the first. Native author I read and realized that I could write about an authentic Native community. And that, and I read him, I think, the end of middle school um, or early high school. Now, as a human being, questionable, right? Like, so, you know, his decisions and actions. Um, but if we separate him personally, you know, from his literature, I, I can't deny that he influenced me. But, you know, there are people leading the way now, like Joy Harjo, and some great contemporary writers of mine, um, like uh, Kelly Jo Ford is a Cherokee Nation writer that I love dearly. So I, I could sit here and just and keep naming people. And then I go back, you know, if I want to go back to the dead white guys, <laughs> I love F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, uh, uh, and Steinbeck. And those were, those were just the people I was exposed to. Uh, oh, Toni Morrison. So I go on and on and on. Uh, but I think... Reading from across cultures is really, really important. And so I don't just read Native authors. I don't just read Appalachian authors. I don't just read American authors um, because I think we've got so much to learn, and especially in terms of style from all those different voices. 
Well, that is an amazing reading list. Very excited. And I will include them all in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Annette. I'm always happy to have you. Yeah, thank you. I I love talking to you. I wish we had more time. We've got more to talk about, Kendra. (laughs) (laughs) I love wearing a t-shirt that makes me look great, but I can also show off my Appalachian regional pride all at the same time. So I've made sure to include Read Appalachia logo designs in our Tee Public store, where you can find everything from t-shirts to hoodies, to buttons, to stickers, to onesies, totes, and more. I've also made sure to include custom designs for each state recognized by the Appalachian Regional Commission, the thing that we loosely use as a guide to the Appalachian region. So you have Read Ohio, Read Kentucky, read North Carolina, etc. designs that you can find and put on all sorts of things. So if you would like to support the show and look great slash have great stickers slash get a onesie for the new little member of your family, head over to our Tee Public store via the link in the show notes or just search Read Appalachia on teepublic.com. Oh my goodness. I always, always, always love talking to Annette Sinook-Clapsaddle about her work and the things that she does with her writing. It is always a lovely time. I really love what she said about literature being so many different things. And I feel like her definition of literature really makes it so much less formal and intimidating. It's a very practical, realistic perspective. I also really love how she loves all different kinds of literature, including the canon, which, yes, is consisted of mostly dead white males, uh, but she loves them, but also uh, writers that are writing today, like Joy Harjo and Kelly Jo Ford, There are just so many writers to discover. And just a reminder, everything that she mentioned will be in the show notes, including all the recommendations from our second guest as well. Now, I love getting different perspectives on different ideas. So I also wanted to ask someone else what their idea of literature is and what that looks like for them. So I was so excited to discover Melissa Helton's Uh, TikTok, that's actually where we like first met, air quotes, online, was her TikTok because she was just talking about the things that she was reading. She has this cool little challenge thing that she has going on in 2023. I just really appreciate her perspective, especially when the horrific flooding happened in eastern Kentucky this past summer. Uh, She was there on the ground giving updates on her TikTok and discussing how, you know, all of their like library was destroyed in their offices and so many different things. I think when you are working uh, on in such a close proximity with people and in a in a educational situation like that, you really get to see what it is like for teachers in this part of the country and the things that they face while working on their educational programming and the need that is there. So Melissa does talk about that later in the interview, and I will be sure to include links to ways that you can support Heinemann Settlement School 
uh, and their recovery from the flood, which they are still working on as I'm recording this right now. But uh, first, let's jump into my conversation with Melissa as she describes how she views literature. But um, of course, first, she introduces us uh, to her work and uh, what she does. So take it away, Melissa. Uh, yeah, um, I'm Melissa Helton. I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio, right there at the Michigan border. Um, so I'm not an Appalachian by birth, but I'm an Appalachian by choice. Um, I was um, an educator in community colleges and universities for about 17 years. And uh, just this year, I got my dream job working at the Heinemann Settlement School, um, an educational and cultural nonprofit in Eastern Kentucky. And uh, we live in Leslie County in Eastern Kentucky. Um, it's where my uh, husband's from and we've got two kids and a worthless dog and a mean cat. <laughs> <laughs> a worthless dog and a mean cat. I mean, that's a crew. You yes, know? <laughs> it is. It is. So we're here today to talk about literature. So I guess that's the big question is when we talk about writing things and doing things, like what is literature? When you talk to your your students or when you talk to your colleagues, for you and your experience of it, what is literature? You, you couldn't have asked a bigger question. <laughs> it's, I know, right? So much of it is subjective, you know, like having a, a discussion of what constitutes art or what constitutes poetry or where's the line between you know, art and pornography or, you know, I mean, there's just, it's so subjective and it's nuanced per person, but then it's also culturally determined. And I would say when most people think of literature, they think of that kind of the academic canon. So the old dead white guys, um, you know, we think of like the great Gatsby and Shakespeare and maybe uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, you know, it's like, what is it all all that kind of um, stuff that we're exposed to in our, our literature classes. For me personally, I would say that it's, it's I don't want to just limit it to the mainstream canon um, because that does a tremendous disservice to mo- most of the written word out there. I would say that a lot of times we think of literature as being very heavy, very, very emotionally difficult or very, you know, there's a lot of suffering in war or like a guy hunting a whale that he's never going to get, you know, it's like this, this uh, stressful, heavy situation. But I think literature can be very entertaining. It can be very lighthearted, very fun, but that's not what we think of. And usually we feel like there's a sense that there's something we have to learn. There's something um, important, some big moral to the story. And I think to some degree, I would, I would define literature as, as having something that we can learn. There, there's some relevatory experience for the reader that were like, oh, I never knew that before. Or we we learn what it was like to to live during a certain time or to have a, a certain kind of experience. I think literature needs to show complexity to the world. And and this is one of our problems in our society. We're very polarizing. We want simple solutions. We want the good guy, the bad guy. We want it black and white, right and wrong. And the world is just a messy, messy gray. And I, I think literature, what I would define as literature reflects that messy gray you know it's it's not the kind of stuff you'd see on the hallmark christmas movies because those are very simple good bad right wrong and uh true love and not true love Um, but but life is is more complex than that and i think literature shows that 
And I think to define something as as literature, um, there has to be some kind of lasting impact that it survives the test of time, that that we can read it 50 years from now and still have that kind of relevatory experience. It doesn't age out of importance. And uh, of course, that artistic craft, that it has to be um, beautifully done. It has to be done with, um, with skill because you can take a, a beautiful, important idea and, and serve it up in a, a literature kind of beautiful way, or you could serve it up, you know, um, in a steaming pile of garbage, right? So, I mean, the idea is important, but it's also the, the craft and it's, it's lasting impact. Another kind of complex thing is I think with literature, we usually think of poetry and fiction very, very quickly can think of things like Of Mice and Men and Shakespeare. And we don't often think of, of nonfiction as literature. We might with memoir, right? We might say The Diary of Anne Frank is literature. But I also think that we can think of, of nonfiction. Um, like I would definitely say, you know, like another Appalachia by Nemo Lashia would be in this literature category. That's going to have staying power. That's it's got the kind of relevatory experience in the craft. But also like Fun Home by Alison Beckdale is a memoir, but it's also like a graphic memoir. So it's illustrated. I think that I would put that in the category of literature. But also nonfiction like Cast, um, The Origin of Our Discontents by um, Isabel Wilkerson that compares the caste systems of India, Nazi Germany, and the U.S. Um, I would put that in the category uh, of literature as well um, because it has all those kind of criteria I put on it. But a lot of people, we just think of fiction and poetry. But um, it's it's a complex thing to answer, complex question, because, you know, 10 people can have 10 different opinions on on what literature is. And certainly the kind of literature I learned in my college classes not necessarily what I would prioritize as, as literature these days. I, I concur. I, my college classes were also very adamant that only certain kinds of things could be capital L literature. Do you think that kind of stickler kind of mentality about that definition, that it only can be certain things, is why so many general readers are intimidated or shy away from like capital L literature? A one thousand percent, yeah. Because when I would have students come into my writing classes who say I can't write, because they had some terrible teacher in seventh grade who told them they were a bad writer, and they just it shut them down. Or people say I don't, I don't like poetry because the only experience they had of poetry was dissecting Shakespeare in high school, and they're like, this is this is terrible. And then you hand them a Frank X Walker poem, and they're like, oh, I didn't know poetry could do this. I didn't know I could do this. Um, as as a writer, and so yeah, school is very damaging to to the arts in a lot of ways. When we look at these old classics that are completely disconnected from our current world or our current experience, and we can't relate to them, or something you know, like you've got more footnotes at the bottom than the actual thing, and it's just like you're slogging through and trying to get the context of the language and the, the euphemisms and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, I think. When we turn art into a math equation or a chemistry formula, when we dissect it to the point that we kill it, um, it's hard to it's hard to go back and see the the beauty of the living beast when it when it was alive. I love going through and analyzing and, and figuring out the the clever metric scheme of of poetry and or the narrative arc through through a story. 
But when that's your only experience, instead of the human experience of, of reading this, um, and it's treated like a math problem, then yeah, that absolutely kills it for a lot of people. Well, you mentioned when you give uh, your students a Frank X. Walker poem that they might connect more with that. Uh, I think that is part of the power of Appalachian literature in our region and our identity is when we see other people um, like us writing these stories. And there's so many different kinds of Appalachian literature out there as well. There's a lot of different stories out there that we can connect with more than, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald or a J.D. Salinger or whatever it is about these um, unhappy young men wandering around cities, which seems to be a theme. So what is it about Appalachian literature from your perspective that makes it unique, that makes uh, literature from our region, I don't know, just just work, work for us? Well, I think like what you're saying about um, uh, representation and seeing something that that you can connect to, I think, is is a beautiful and powerful thing when you hear people talking like you talk, when you see landscapes that 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 you know and you understand. But even this is this is complex and nuanced as well because what do we define as Appalachia? So I mean, we've got you know the 420 counties, 13 states. Okay, we we understand how the Appalachian Region Commission uh, divvies us up. But like at my community college in Harlan County, I would ask my students, you know, okay, who who are Appalachians? And some people would say, well, if you live within the geography, then then you're an Appalachian. But some born and raised, they've been here for seven generations. They would say, I'm not Appalachian because I don't like four wheeling. I'm not Christian. I don't go hunting. And they they wouldn't claim that identity for themselves. And then other students would say, well, talking to me, they would say, well, Miss Helton, you're more Appalachian than I am because you slaughter hogs and string shuck beans and you live back in the mountain. You heat your home with firewood, you know? So, but then what about our, what about our urban Appalachians? What about our, our BIPOC and our queer Appalachians, our non-Christian Appalachians? And that's one of the, the kind of the, not revolutions, but this third wave of, of Appalachian literature, it seems like the first wave was outsiders writing about us and our region. And the second wave is, well, when Appalachians started being published and writing about our own stories and places. And now we're moving into kind of this third wave where it's we're trying to show the world that Appalachia isn't a homogenous monolith, um, that, that we have all sorts of kind of people here and live all sorts of kind of lives. And so when we talk about Appalachian literature, does it have to have Appalachian characters, like uh, Silas House, uh, Lark Ascending, beautiful novel, takes place in Maine and Ireland. Would we classify that in Appalachian literature because he's an Appalachian writer? The characters in the story aren't necessarily here. Or does it have to be written by an Appalachian? So if I write, uh, publish a nonfiction book I'm writing about, it's a feminist critique of postcards. It has nothing to do with this particular region. It's a global kind of thing would we classify that as, as Appalachian because I happen to be writing it while sitting in this county? One of the, the kind of defining characteristics of Appalachian, however we're, whoever's included in the, in the party, is this attention to place. I read this recently, this, um, this queer romance called Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley, Ashley Blake, I think. 
that doesn't play take place in Appalachia. I don't know where it takes place because it's kind of just floating in this fictional void. It gave the town a name, but it it's not grounded in anything that I could um, hold on to. But Appalachian literature is very much so to where Finding HF by Julia Watts, right? She won the Lambda, I believe, for that. And it's um, uh, a young queer woman growing up in eastern Kentucky, and she goes to Florida. And, I mean, even when she's not physically in Appalachia, you know where this character's from. You hear it in the language, in the the scenery, the culture, the energy, the food, um, the commentary about uh, what she's experiencing. Um, and that's one of the defining characteristics, I think, about Certainly we get this in other regional writing as well. Like you can read a New York City novel and it's a New York City novel. Like you feel it. But we certainly do that with with Appalachian Lit, this attention to place. And one of the things that, that I love uh, so much is when uh, dialect, the Appalachian dialect comes across in, in literature. And that's, of course, that's a touchy thing because you want it to be authentic and you want it to to carry the beauty of the language because my husband's from here. And so I, I, I love the way that um, different Appalachian dialects. And so when, when that kind of music is in the stories and in the poems and even something as simple, like Lisa Parker's a poet. And when she went to, she went away to new England somewhere for college um, for her MFA, I believe. And they, um, one of her professors told her that that holler wasn't a word. And she was like, uh, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it is where I come from. And so it's a lot of times when you when you pick up um, things written by Appalachians, you hear it, you feel it, you see it in the details. That's something I think a lot about reading Appalachian literature is that connection to place. Having talked to a lot of different Appalachian book lovers, that that is one of the key, like, top like that's going to be in their top three, like descriptions of what Appalachian literature is. It can be so many different things, but almost always there's a connection to place. And I find that really interesting because Appalachian region is so diverse in its locations and what it's like. I had extreme culture shock when I moved from central Appalachia to down here at the very edge of southern Appalachia. Completely like different. The Venn diagram you know, the South Carolina upstate is more Southern than Appalachian, but it's still there. And I just find that really interesting reading literature and Appalachian literature and seeing those differences. So we've talked a little bit about like what Appalachian literature is and teaching it. And you work at Hyman Settlement School, which teaches writing to all sorts of different people and you bring in teachers. And I just love following like an avid fan, like seeing who you have coming in the summer and all sorts of different things. And you're really cultivating regional talent for Appalachian writers to be able to improve their craft. For you, having worked there, having been there and doing all of these things, what are some of the challenges of teaching writing this way and with this intention of cultivating local Appalachian talent in the literary sphere? I think... A lot of times, writers struggle to accept that what they have to say is worth saying. I've recently had a conversation with a writer who just signed a book deal for her memoir, and I'm super stoked. And she's got like 
Gurney Norman cheering her on and she still has imposter syndrome. Like she's like that I'm not a writer. Ada Lamone, who our Kentucky State or our U.S. Poet Laureate, Kentucky writer, um, her first appearance as U.S. Poet Laureate was in Hazard, Kentucky. And I took my 16-year-old with me and my 13-year-old. My 16-year-old's a writer and she got up and asked. Um, and it was Ada Lamone and Crystal Wilkinson. And she asked them, these poet laureates, like, do you have, do you ever feel imposter syndrome? And they both said, absolutely. And I was like, okay, see, <laughs> we all kind of struggle with accepting that we have something worthwhile to add to the conversation that other people would be interested in it. And that's before we even get to the page and we worry about craft and we worry about publication and all the fallout that can happen after publication. Um, but that's been one of the the tremendous things about Heinemann Settlement School in particular, you know, our, on our website, it shows this tagline, you know, um, that we've served as a literary seedbed for over a century. And that's not, that's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. Um, we were founded in 1902. And from the very beginning, we've been that kind of ground where um, Appalachian Lit can and spring out of. We've got the the list is is overwhelming when you look at Lucy Furman and Albert Stewart and James Still lived on our campus for sixty years. I mean he's buried there and Jean Ritchie and Verna Mae Sloan and George Ella Lyon, just all of these matriarchs and patriarchs of of Appalachian literature. And it's one of the most magical it's one of the most magical things because before I, I got hired on there as community programs manager. I attended the Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is a week-long event in July where you, you come stay on campus and you live in community and you take classes and listen to readings. And I was washing dishes with George Ella Lyon before I knew who she was, before I read a single sentence that she had ever written. I was sitting and having breakfast with Dorothy Allison before I'd read a single word that she'd ever written. You know, coming to Appalachia 12 years ago, I have never seen a writing community this gracious, this generous to where, you know, somebody like Rebecca Gill Howell will just uh, sit with me and, and and talk about, you know, my writing dreams. And that's one of the the miraculous things. And it's not just at, at Heinemann. You see the same thing at Mountain Heritage Literary Festival, Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee, and, and these other conferences and and gatherings like um, SOC, the Southern Appalachian Writers Co-op, this this group of people are so encouraging with their time, with their resources, with their care. That's one of the things that I'm most honored to kind of pass on because my main job is is to start a young writers program at Heinemann. So we have writers residencies like Robert Guy just taught some high schoolers in Knott County. Letha Kendrick was working in Wolf County. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is we had our inaugural Ironwood Writers Studio in June where high schoolers came and stayed on campus, just like the adult writers workshop. And they they worked with wonderful writers as teachers and um, they kind of bonded and, and shared time together. And on one of their evaluations, one of the students, she said, I can honestly say that this was the best week of my life that she'd never felt as cared for or as validated. And to see this high school sophomore, you know, go from being shy and uncertain, because it's vulnerable to be creative with other people, and to see her stand at that podium where I've seen Wendell Berry read, 
where I've seen Nikki Giovanni read and to see her have the courage to to say what she needed to say. I mean, I I cried. I'd cry thinking about it right now. But it's it's a really beautiful thing because we need all of our our different voices because especially in Appalachia where we're so used to our story being told by outsiders or by people with, uh, you know, uh, questionable motives <laughs> or uh, people who are, who are looking through the goggles of stereotype and prejudice and classism and urbanism and all these kinds of things. For our Appalachian writers to, to stand up and say, this is what life is like. This is what I think. And for them to know that they have value. I mean, it's, I mean, of course, I'm an English teacher. It's such a cliche to see that writing has power, but of course it does. It's like a form of of mind control. I can read a Zen poet who was living 2,000 years ago. And through these weird little abstract squiggles on paper, his voice is in my head, showing me this loon lifting off of a pond. I'm not a a Japanese man living 2,000 years ago, but I'm sitting there with him and I'm seeing what he's seeing. And so for our, our Appalachian writers to, to show the world what they see and think um, and add that to this big conversation and the, the, the nuance of understanding of the region is, is such a beautiful thing. So when I say that this is my dream job, I do not exaggerate. It's, uh, it's wonderful. That is a dream of mine to be able to go to Heinemann to see all of that as you paint that picture. You definitely, you definitely need to come. It's a, it's a beautiful time and and one of my favorite, one of my favorite things is the one that we didn't get to do it this year because the terrible flood in July hit when we had our writers on campus. So it'll be a well-documented flood because there were 70 writers there. But um, we read the Briar Sermon by Jim Wayne Miller on Thursday night. And you gather out in the parking lot in the dark and somebody has a flashlight and we get in this big circle and everybody reads a stanza. And so the, the Briar Sermon is read in, in everybody's voice, just lifted up past uh you know james still's grave and and up into the dark mountains and so it's it's a, a very beautiful time and i've i've been going since 2015 and i've never encountered ego or hubris it's a really beautiful beautiful time you definitely need to come next year Like I've mentioned in other parts of this episode, there are a lot of different ways that you can support Read Appalachia. Read Appalachia is currently funded by me and by the merch sales and the donations over on Ko-Fi. Ko-Fi is a platform where you can set up a recurring donation or you can do a one-off donation. That's sort of like a tip jar, as it were. On Ko-Fi, I give little early tidbits about the upcoming episodes, who our guests are, all sorts of little insider details, and I really love how you can add so many different kinds of media, like photos of corgis. I mean, why have an assistant producer and a surly intern that are corgis if you're not going to put up photos of them? I ask the important questions here, right? (laughs) But podcasting is expensive with the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast and all sorts of things. Uh, So your help is greatly appreciated. You can find a link to the Ko-Fi in the show notes. Uh, But yeah, thanks to all of you who have already supported Read Appalachia on Ko-Fi. You have made these episodes possible. And I look forward to making even more episodes in the future. All right, now back to our episode. 
mentioned the flood and which was absolutely devastating. How is the rebuilding going? How is putting everything back together after such a, it was just a horrific, just a horrific disaster that really hit the region just so hard. I believe it happened in late July. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was July 28th. And, um, I, I was on campus doing trivia for writer's workshop, but I came home that night cause I had my daughter with me. And so we came home. So I wasn't there for the flood, but I woke up at like three o'clock the next morning, kind of just queasy. And I didn't know why I felt so terrible. And it woke me enough to where I looked at my phone and saw it was blowing up with messages because people thought I was on campus. And, but yeah, we, all of our writers got off the ground safe. I think 10 or 12 of them lost their vehicles. The Troublesome Creek, there is usually four, five, six inches deep. It was 20 feet. It just tore through campus. We had five buildings damaged. Um, we had 52 inches of water in our archives and our administrative offices. And we have two um, two apartments on the ground floor where the faculty stay. So, um, you know, Carter Sickles was there. Nicole Brown was one of the first one to see the, the water rising. And uh, she got everybody kind of alerted and... Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think the water in there was still strong enough to knock our washers and dryers over to, to knock books off the shelves. And I think like little George Ella Lyon was there. She probably would have been underwater. It was just, thank God everybody was okay. But the, the recovery has, it's been, it's been slow, but it's been, it's been good progress. We just got the last car that was in upside down in the river was pulled out yesterday. And so our, um, we're still having, um, our offices are just kind of scattered about sitting in the dining hall or sitting in, sitting in the great hall, working on porches, things like that. But one of our, our main challenges was not only while we were digging ourselves out, um, we were this kind of portal for the community where donations and, and things were coming to us and we were serving three meals a day. We had, um, uh, dozens of, uh, not county residents who were staying on campus with us because as soon as the writers got off campus, our executive director put out the call and said, we don't have water, we don't have electric, we don't have clean sheets, but if you need a place to stay. And so we were we were doing those things while digging ourselves out. But then also like we we have our literature programming, we have foodways and community gardens, we have traditional arts, and we also do um, literacy and dyslexia interventions. Well, we offer tutoring in counties that weren't flooded and they were back to school. So we were trying to do our regular stuff while trying to do all this other. And um, the the people I work with are, are really miraculous. And between, um, between all of them and the generosity of our volunteers, I mean, I couldn't even list the hundreds of people, um, thousands of people, I'm sure, if we consider monetary donations who showed up. And some of the biggest groups of people that showed up were Daughters of the American Revolution and our writing community, because this place is so important to, it's like once you're, once you're in the Heinemann uh, writing world, um, I mean, they get together online and have a breakfast every, every, every month just to, just to chit chat. So, I mean, we had people drive up from North Carolina, come down from West Virginia just to shovel mud, to help serve meals, um, to help clean things. And so by the generosity of our volunteers, we've been able to do a lot, but um, it's still, I mean, we just finally got a, a water heater back in the, the kitchen. We still don't have offices. Um, 
So there's still a lot that needs to to be done. And and looking at the long-term goals, they calculated this as a thousand-year flood. But with climate change and extractive resources, the thousand-year flood is going to come again. It's going to be here in another generation or so. So how do we build back to protect ourselves from having to go through this again? And so that that um, is a multi-year uh, long process, but things are good. But also, you know, there's still a lot that needs to be done. And the last question I always ask everyone is the really hard one. What books would you would you recommend? And there's so many. So I know it's a difficult task and I apologize in advance, but <laughs> I feel like it's an important question. <laughs> that that is a that is a hard one, especially because so much of my um, love of Appalachian literature comes through the writer um, because through Heinemann, I often have relationships with these people before I even read their work. So like I, I was teaching with um, Robert Geit before his books were even published. So it, it comes about in a roundabout way. So it's hard for me to, to uh, recommend books necessarily, but I will recommend writers. Definitely um, Darnell Arnold. Savannah Sipple's work, I'm very excited. She's she, Her book of poems is out, WWJD, and she's working on a, uh, a fiction. Anything by Rebecca Gale Howell, anything by Nicole Brown. Obviously, Crystal Wilkinson's Perfect Black is just wonderful, just won the NAACP Image Award. Um, and she's, she's a lovely teacher and a, a lovely person if you ever get to uh, spend time with her. I don't <laughs> so many. <laughs> just, I I love them all. Um, I'm very excited. I've, I recently loved Bernard Clay's um, English Lit, and he's uh, here in Eastern Kentucky. I love his work, and he's uh, a gracious teacher and a wonderful person as well. If you ever get to meet him, he's he's one of my favorites. I interviewed him for 100 Days of Appalachia, and just amazing. And then when he reads his poetry, I just like. Why do I write? Like, why do I do? Like, why do I do any of this? <laughs> I love his author photo on the back. He's like on the tractor. It's amazing. So cute. It's amazing. <laughs> I could talk to Melissa about different books all day long. Uh, so, in fact, we, I won't say goodbye to her yet. She will be returning uh, in another episode for this Read Appalachia launch series. Uh, but I, I just love talking book recommendations. So again, all of those recommendations will be linked in the show notes, as well as the link to Hyman Settlement School, so you all can donate to their continued efforts to rebuild after the flooding from this summer. I don't know about you, but I certainly have learned a lot about Appalachian literature today. And that, honestly, for me, the big thing is that there is no singular type of Appalachian literature. There are as many different kinds of Appalachian literature as there are writers, it seems, in a lot of ways. Some of the recurring elements, like a deep sense of place, I think uh, you can find a great appreciation for the natural world, certainly. Uh, but I've really appreciated listening to Annette and Melissa's discussions of what Appalachian literature looks like for them. I also keep thinking about something that Annette said, that for many of her students, before they had read her novel, Even As We Breathe, and saw the protagonist, which is a Cherokee young man, 
that some of those students had never seen themselves represented in a book before. And that really made me think about how a lot of people from different marginalized communities in Appalachia just have not historically seen themselves represented in the books that they read from their region. But Black, Indigenous, and authors of color, LGBTQ plus authors, disabled authors, neurodivergent authors, immigrant authors, all of these people writing in these mountains are just as much a part of our community and culture as anyone else. And they deserve to be treasured and celebrated for the incredible artists, writers that they are. So I'm so excited for the show. I'm so excited to be able to talk about so many different kinds of Appalachian literature and writing with you. I cannot wait to jump in to talk to so many different kinds of authors, and uh, we will be doing all of that. I'm I'm so excited. Uh, one episode at a time, of course. I don't want to get too much ahead of myself. We have a great season ahead of us. But yeah, I I cannot wait to talk about books again with you all. Well, we've talked about what is Appalachian literature today, and next week we will be talking about where does Appalachian literature come from? Be sure to join us for this conversation where I will be talking to two directors of different publishing houses. I don't want to give any spoilers, uh, but I'm so excited to talk to them about the creation of books as an object, but also publishing authors' ideas so come back this time next week. It's a date and we'll jump into that awesome conversation. I am a huge publishing nerd. So this, this is my jam. <laughs> well, that's it for our show for today. A heartfelt thank you to Annette Sinook Clapsaddle and Melissa Hilton for coming on the show to talk about Appalachian literature with me. You can find all of their social links and website links, etc., in the show notes. And like I mentioned earlier on the show, you can find all the myriad of ways you can support Read Appalachia on readappalachia.com and again, also in the show notes. You can find us across social media at Read Appalachia. You can find me, Kendra, on social media at KD Winchester. And make sure you join us next time for our next episode. All right. Until then, happy reading. <laughs>